Hi, everyone. Welcome to Female Founder World, the place to meet your business besties online and IRL. I'm Jasmine Garnsworthy. I'm the creator of Female Founder World. And we actually have a bunch of really great events coming up both online, but also in person in New York and Austin. So if you're not already RSVP to some of that programming, just head to femalefounderworld.com to find out either what pop-up networking events are happening in your city or what you can join online because obviously anyone with an internet connection can join our online programming and those sessions are always, always super popular. Okay, onto the show today. I'm chatting with the founder and CEO of Fly by Jing, Jing Gao. They're a Chinese food CPG business best known for this really delicious Sichuan chili crisp and Fly by Jing's pretty buzzy. They're, if you're on the food scene, you definitely have heard about them, read about them, seen them on TikTok or Instagram or it covered in press, like Jing is an absolute pro at getting her business uh, covered in the media. And we're going to get into that in the episode as well. She actually launched Fly by Jing with a Kickstarter campaign and shares some really interesting insights on how to game the Kickstarter algorithm, which will be great for anyone who's interested in crowdfunding. And then in her second year, she 10x the business. And today she's leading a team of 20. And I think they've doubled the business this year. So they're just some benchmarks and milestones to really help you understand where Jing is at right now in her founder story. But let's get into the interview and hear from Jing firsthand about how she built her business. You are now entering female founder world with your host, Jasmine Grinesworthy. Jing, welcome to female founder world. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start with people who don't know your business, don't know Fly by Jing. What are you building over there? So we are a premium, all-natural Chinese food company. We are known for our line of condiments, especially our hero product, Sichuan Chili Crisp, which is a spicy, crunchy, hot sauce that you can put on pretty much anything. And the flavors are inspired by my hometown in Sichuan. I love that. We're going to um, get into all the details about how you've been building the business, but I think that your backstory is super interesting as well, because this isn't your first business, you know, and you're someone who went to business school, you worked as a brand manager for a few years, and then you opened a restaurant. And I want to understand how somebody opens a restaurant at the age of 25 and how all of that came to be. Yeah. So it kind of starts at the very beginning. So I was born in Chengdu, grew up moving around a lot because my father's job and we moved to a different European country almost every year of my life. And I kind of, you know, lost uh, touch with my cultural, you know, identity side of things. And so I didn't really realize that or reconnect with that until I found myself in China in my 20s. And that was you know, accidental because I, I moved there for a job and started out as really just exploring the incredible flavors and foods um, turned into kind of a personal quest to, you know, reconnect with my roots through those flavors, which then turned into uh, wanting to shine light on the really complex, you know, culinary heritage of mm-hmm. over 5,000 years that I felt like was completely misunderstood um, outside of China. And um, and I wanted to, you know, kind of shine light to it and and put it on the, the pedestal that I felt like it deserved to be on. And so eventually I quit my job and I opened a restaurant in Shanghai, uh, which ended up, you know, winning some awards. And it was one of the first fast casual yeah modern Chinese restaurants in 
in Shanghai and, you know, made it onto things like, you know, the wallpaper guide to Shanghai, the New York magazine and Monocle. Um, so it was really, you know, fulfilling kind of my, my mission to show people what Chinese flavors could be. It was all natural as well. And, you know, really uh, sustainably sourced ingredients. Wow. How does somebody start a restaurant at, I think I've got noted down here that you were 25 at the time. I just thinking about what I was doing when I was 25 and I was not opening a restaurant that was getting um, featured in New York <laughs> magazine. How did that happen? I was already at the time blogging about Chinese food and, you know, not many people were doing that in English at the time. And so I was, you know, gaining a following and was able to meet incredible people in that process, including celeb chefs who would come to China and I would, you know, take them around to eat and be on their TV shows. And so just one thing led to another. And I kind of felt that mission building inside of me to, to want to, you know, devote myself more to Chinese food and Chinese food culture. And so I um, quit my job at the time, not knowing what I was going to do. And I happened to meet uh, my business partner at the time. And he was um, from a quite a wealthy background and and wanted to open a restaurant, but didn't really know what to do. And, and I had the idea and like kind of the drive to make it happen. And so mm-hmm. we partnered and um, ended up opening the place about a year and a half later. Very cool. Okay. So how did, how did you kind of move out of that business? Um, I think that, you know, for folks who maybe they're in their first business now, what are some of the lessons that you learned about protecting yourself and structuring a business partnership that you learned as that kind of partnership ended? Yeah, I think I was really glad that I was so young when I did that Mm -hmm. um, project because, you know, you obviously learn a ton of lessons from your first business. And, and this is now something that, you know, after having spoken to so many founders, it's a very common story, you know, with kind of conflict with partners. And, you know, I think at the time I was super naive, did not protect myself properly, legally, um, you know, the, the company was funded by my former business partner's father, you know, who had a lot of money yep. and, you know, he sat on the board and, you know, I didn't make sure that, you know, I was kind of legally protected as a, as a partner in the business. And so even though I put in, you know, disproportionate amount of work and got it to the success that it saw, it was exceptionally easy for them to kind of push me out of the business when they when they thought that they didn't need me anymore. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of, you know, what happened. It's, it's a, it, it was, it, and unfortunately it is so much more common than you think. Right. And for, for a variety of reasons, but in this case, it was like a case of, you know, ego getting the better of somebody and, and them feeling like, you know, they wanted more attention for, for the business. And so, I found myself, you know, two years, two and a half years in after having poured everything that I had into this. And, and also the other thing is I didn't take a salary, mm-hmm. which is a big learning, mm-hmm. right? I think, um, you know, especially when you do have funding, like obviously when you are bootstrapping, it is difficult to take a salary. And, but, you know, when you do have funding and, uh, you know, I was on a very different um, economic ground as my business partner, he had, yeah. you know, no issues. His whole, whole lifestyle was paid for and he did not worry about getting paid. But I 
made those sacrifices and had to kind of support myself in the interim. So I had um, side hustles. I had Airbnbs that I was running and, you know, that was how I kept myself afloat Um, and also living off of uh, savings. And so that obviously was was another lesson. And um, I ended up, you know, leaving the business two and a half years later where they kind of forced me out and lost everything and, and never was able to kind of recoup even the time that I had spent in in the two and a half years prior to that. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I kind of, I knew that I was going to be out muscled in terms of like legal capacities and financial capacities. And so I just left it behind and, you know, I was 27 and obviously devastated because I felt like I lost my baby that I had built and, Mm. you know, was, had poured every part of myself into, but the only way forward that I could see was just to move on and move on as quickly as possible. And so, you know, that ended up leading me to fly by Jing. So grateful for, for the entire journey, but it's some painful lessons along the way. How does somebody like I just like the res- the resilience and the conviction in yourself that it must have taken to go from that to launching another business independently. How do you how do you have that mindset or how did you have that resilience? Is there a practice? Did you just have like this innate belief in yourself? Because I think that's you know not everyone has quite that dramatic a story. That sounds horrific. But I do think a lot of founders, their first, second, third ventures don't work out and they kind of have to keep picking themselves up and do the next thing. How did you do that? Mm -hmm. I think the process, you know, what it was, that experience of running that restaurant, it felt like, you know, real life business school, right? And Mm -hmm. I kind of chalked it up at the end to the tuition that I paid was my time, right? And I didn't have to, you know, pay for business school. I mean, I paid with my energy and my time, but I learned a ton throughout that journey. And I also knew what I was capable of now because I built the whole thing. You know, it was my vision. I was able to bring it to life. And as I said, you know, I I contributed a disproportionate amount to, to that business. And so that gave me the confidence to, even though it was like very traumatizing, it gave me the confidence to move on because I knew that if I could do this, I could do something else even better. And, you know, it also drove me to really own what I was doing and, Mm. you know, express something that was really uniquely my own. And so when I think about the through line of my journey, you know, every thing, every event led me to where I am now because I probably wouldn't have gone down a path of like seeking, you know, something that was truly authentic to my experience, which is, you know, what Fly Bedging is. And then you went and worked for a really well-known chef at a restaurant. You started doing your own kind of pop-up dinners. How did you get to the place where you noticed a gap in the market where you wanted to create a product like Fly by Jing? So, yeah, I studied with an incredible chef in Sichuan. So I went to my hometown and asked to stage with him and just spent a lot of time soaking up, you know, everything that he could teach me about the techniques and the traditions and the flavors and the ingredients. But I, the entire time I was really thinking like, what is, you know, what is my unique contribution to Sichuan food? I didn't want to just replicate uh, reproduce what was already 
being done and being done very well. But, you know, I recognize that Sichuan cuisine and Chinese cuisine as a whole has always been in evolution. There's never been a stagnant moment in a culture or a cuisine because otherwise, you know, it doesn't move forward, it, it dies. And so it has always been a hallmark of the cuisine. So it gave me kind of the confidence to, you know, do my part in pushing it forward in my own way as well. So I just started you know, cooking with some of these ingredients, which I think Sichuan food is known for its flavor profiles and the flavors are so applicable across different canvases, right? So as long as you are really, you know, mastering the balance of the flavors, you can apply it to so many different ways. And so I just started experimenting, doing pop-up dinners with other chefs at their restaurants, started um, an underground supper club in my place in Shanghai and, Amazing. Yeah. So it was super fun. And, you know, people, the word started to spread and people would invite me to go and do the dinners in Japan and Australia, New Zealand, in New York. You're saying LA. this like it's so casual to just start a supper club <laughs> where you're getting invited to dinner all over the world. That is amazing. It was really, really fun. And, you know, I was constantly on the road. I was taking these ingredients with me and, you know, just having a lot of fun and saw how people reacted to these flavors. And it was instant kind of resonance. And I think people really loved it, but, you know, had no idea that it even existed and Mm -hmm. um, had no access to it either because these ingredients and these flavors were just not available in, in those markets. It was not available anywhere because it was kind of an, it, because it was unique to, to my way of cooking. Right. And so even in Sichuan, even with my family members, they would be like, they would enjoy the flavors, but be like, Oh, that's interesting. I've never tasted that before. So, yeah. So I think that was the process where I, where I really started to see a gap in the market and that people just, you know, there was this demand, but no supply. And so Mm -hmm. I started to think more deeply about how do I make these flavors more accessible, more available and, and scale it up. And so I started to experiment with batching some of the sauces I was making and bottling it and started by giving it away to friends and family, but um, eventually started a little online shop in Shanghai and sold it to local retailers. And that started to take off, but you know, I was making everything in my kitchen at home. So it was very, very small batches. And then, you know, I I think I realized because I was working in food media before and I was quite aware that media in the U.S. really does color the way that the world sees a lot of things, right? And, you know, if I wanted to change the perceptions about Chinese food and the way that people view the food, the culture and the people, um, you kind of have to start in the U.S. And so I decided to come to the U.S. and check out what the market was like here. And I, what, what I saw really shocked me. There was very little, you know, in terms of Chinese flavors, Asian flavors. It was, it was just such a barren landscape. And it was very surprising to me because, you know, Chinese food is very dominant, actually, in the U.S. There's 50,000 Chinese restaurants here, which outnumbers McDonald's, Starbucks, Burger King, everything combined. And yet there is such misconceptions and such prejudice against Chinese food um, where people think that it's 
low quality, unhealthy, and deserves to be cheap. And, you know, Mm. it's not worth paying for. And so that was kind of what I wanted to change um, and address with with what I was going to do next. You kicked off the business with a Kickstarter campaign. Obviously, anyone who's listening to this who has tried to create a physical product knows that those MOQs are no joke. It is expensive getting something off the ground. What are some of the lessons that you had around the Kickstarter that helped you kind of hit your goal and then end up actually beating your goal? Yeah, so Kickstarter, I recommend to a lot of founders when they're starting out because it is such a great platform for just, you know, gaining some initial momentum behind what you're doing, seeing whether there is an appetite for it, proving Mm. out a proof of concept and doing it in a way that's pretty low risk. Because I think Kickstarter, it's, you know, unlike a Shopify store or some kind of e-commerce platform, Kickstarter, there's an understanding that, you know, if you're supporting a project on Kickstarter, uh, you're supporting the, the entrepreneurial journey and there's a lot of mishaps along the way. And so there's the expe- there's not an expectation that like you you will even get what you pay for. <laughs> so it kind of is much more friendly to people who have really big ideas. And there's a whole ecosystem on Kickstarter. There's a lot of people who are out there who really love to support entrepreneurs and new ideas that are that are part of that community. And so you're tapping into a, a community that's already built in. And these people just happen to be some of the most trend-setting, you know, kind of uh, early adopters, you know, out there. So you want those people to to find you and to support you and to spread the word about you. So there's a lot of, you know, Kickstarter offers a lot of tools and resources to help you create a successful campaign. The most important part of your campaign is probably the video. So, you know, there's guide, guidelines and, you know, what you should be uh, doing in your video, the video should be very clear, should, you know, represent very quickly what you're trying to do and, you know, the value proposition. And, you know, the, the video should also in the first 30 seconds tell exactly, you know, what you want to express because, you know, people tend to drop off after that mark. Right. So these are the things that Kickstarter will tell you, like, you know, make sure that you put everything up front because, Otherwise, some people make like five minute videos expecting, you know, people to watch all the way through and they don't. So video is really important. The way that you tell your story on the page is really important. Think of it as like a landing page, like for your product, like it's a one page website for your product. So how do you want to present yourself? And then the offerings really important. So the different tiers that you offer you want to make sure that there's something at the $25 price point because that's like what the majority of people on Kickstarter will back at. And so you want to make sure that your core offering, you know, hopefully will have something that fits into that $25 price point. And then you want to have different tiers beyond that as well. And another thing that they don't tell you, you know, but you, you know, you can definitely read on all of their resources is that you want to kind of game the algorithm a bit, right? So mm-hmm. the algorithm is such that it'll push you out to more 
people. It'll feature you on with more badges and, you know, and more uh, promo materials if your project is guaranteed to come to fruition. So that's when it's fully funded. So you have to make sure that you're fully funded within the first couple of days, ideally, so that there's momentum behind it and it snowballs. And so, you know, even if you, for example, know that you need maybe $100,000 for your project, you don't want to set your goal at $100,000 because that might be more difficult to reach. But the thing is, your project will keep going for like 30 days, even if you meet your goals. So if you set it at $10,000 or $20,000 and you hit that within the first day, then that momentum helps to propel you forward and allows you to wow. reach, you know, your actual goal. So, you know, the trick is set your goal, not so low that it is obviously artificial, but um, low enough that you can hit within a day. And then once you have the momentum, because people are more likely to back a project that's going to happen, right? Like if, if you don't hit your goal, all that money actually gets returned to the backers. So it's not going to mm-hmm. happen. So yeah. So, you know, those are the things that to really watch out for and then get press, you know, like the, the you know, for, for me, the reason why I was fully backed within 24 hours was because we were featured in the New York magazine and in Savor magazine and tasting table. So another blog on the day that we launched and, and that, you know, brought a ton of eyeballs and, and then, you know, in that, in addition to your own network is what you really need to, to get you there. Amazing. Okay. So you've got the funding, you put together your first product and I just, I know that you've been in business for a few years now, but I feel like I see fly Jing everywhere. I follow, you know, in any kind of like food blog, I'm seeing it in stores. What did you do early on to really get that traction and build that momentum? So initially it was the Kickstarter backers. So there was a community of like a thousand to uh, almost 2000 of them that I was able to tap into. And when I, you know, fulfilled the first orders to them, they they loved it. They were able to spread the word. And like I said, you know, they tend to be the people, the early adopters and the trendsetters in their communities that others listen to. And so, you know, that was a really great jump off point. And that's why I also recommend Kickstarter to most founders when they're starting out. Mm-hmm. It's just a really great network. So then when I launched my Shopify site, I was able to tap into that same group and, you know, I emailed them all because you, you have access to their emails. And so I emailed them all and announced that, Hey, like, you know, you can, you can now reorder with the websites up and that, you know, gave a really nice initial boost again and further momentum. And I think the press played a, a role in that too. Like as much as they did when we first launched on Kickstarter, uh, once, once we, we launched for good, they, they actually covered us even more. And I think, um, and we never had PR agencies. It was all organic or inbound or, you know, I think especially in the early days as a founder, especially for a founder driven brand like Fly by Jing, it's the, the press is so much more receptive to communication directly from the founder. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, especially when you have a story that's very clear that's almost built into the product and the brand, they tend to want to tell your story for you. And I think the biggest part 
about PR is getting the story right to start. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's actually the biggest challenge because once you have that figured out, it's almost like the story will, will help tell itself. Right. So it's but understanding. Thing. So it's like understanding as a founder what your story is and what it is that you're trying to share with you know what the story yeah. is that you're trying to get pressed to. Kind exactly of the brand, the brand positioning, and the brand message. Like being extremely clear on that. What is your proposition? What's the value proposition of the brand and the products? And that once you have it, that's like the the biggest part of the the puzzle. Things have changed a lot in the last few years um, in the digital marketing landscape. And I can I can understand how early on getting that early press and really tapping into that core community of, of um, your Kickstarter backers could have helped really get traction. In terms of how you've been scaling the business to where it is now, what are some of the things that you've done both on the wholesale side and on the e-commerce side to kind of get to where you are now? So we started out with direct-to-consumer on our site, and that was out of necessity because, you know, it has a very low barrier to entry. And so we were able to, you know, grow our following, um, sell our products and, you know, kind of grow organically. And then once we, and really build our brand, right? I think that's the Mm -hmm. biggest thing is like, get the brand out there. And the, the great thing about D2C is that, you know, you were able to really create a world, a brand world online and be able to control that narrative and and really build it out and and build a community around it. So I think we were able to do that quite well. And and, and you're able to, as a small brand also using uh, tools like Instagram and TikTok and, and so on to really build an outsized brand awareness. And that's, that's really key before you start to like enter into other channels. So what we did was we, we did that first. And then we, uh, when we felt ready, we went on Amazon as a channel. And then when we felt ready, we went on into retail. And so we only just entered retail this year. And, uh, you know, now we're available in many grocery stores across the country, but, you know, there's also kind of a gradual way that we've done that as well. We're premium product. And so, you know, you want to start with those specialty retailers, those stores that, you know, are in those communities where people are, you know, really noticing your brand. And, um, and once there's enough brand awareness, I think that's when you, it's, it's, it's for a small company, it's, that's when it's more optimal to enter a larger chain because getting onto a grocery shelf is relatively easy compared to moving product off the shelf. And so mm-hmm. you need to really have that brand awareness built before you do that. Otherwise it can be a challenge and you don't, you know, you get one shot at that and you don't want to mess that up. So that, there's yeah, kind of a, a, a gradual way to do it. That's definitely something that I think not a lot of founders or I kind of get skimmed over is that often, you know, getting landing the wholesale account is one thing, but actually making sure that your product sells through so that that, that buyer or that category manager is reordering with you or you don't have to, you know, do some kind of buyback or something like that is also mm-hmm. the other half of the picture that is super important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so for for products like CPG products that 
you sell in stores, Velocity being, you know, in the top one to three brands in whatever category you're in is extremely important for you to stay on the shelves. Amazing. Okay. That's a, that's a really good kind of number to know. Are there any milestones or metrics or anything that you can share with folks to help them understand kind of where the business is now and, and the growth that you've achieved over the last few years since you launched? So when we first launched, you know, we had no financial backing. It was completely bootstrapped and I had to rely on just mostly word of mouth. We had no budget. We couldn't even we couldn't even uh, hire anybody. So it was mm-hmm. just me doing pretty much everything. And then, you know, but it was like pretty solid organic growth every like month over month in the first year. And then when COVID happened, I think, you know, for a lot of small businesses, particularly food and DTC food, um, we actually did see a tremendous amount of growth as people started to cook at home for the first time and, you know, realized yeah. that they needed some help um, with bringing those flavors to their home cooking. And so we ended up 10xing our business in our, you know, second year, which wow. started to gain a lot of attention for us because also we were, like I said, like one of the first modern Asian food brands to launch in the US. And so that got the attention. And, and, you know, I think a a lot of other brands with similar ethos came out of the pandemic as well. And, you know, I think we were able to carve out that space for us and help to create more space for other brands like us as well. And so with that, there's like this momentum that has been really great over the last few years, like carrying us and other brands forward. And so, you know, we ended up attracting investors as well in 2021. And we then, you know, that year we grew 3x from that and like, you know, have been growing quickly into retail this year. And um, we've more than doubled this year as well. So it's been exponential growth, which has been super exciting because, you know, at every, uh, it feels like, several years rolled into just three years. And, um, at every stage of the business, it kind of feels like a whole new, whole new company, you know, cause we went from having zero employees in two years to having 20 and. Wow. You know, the last thing that I ask everyone who comes on the show is just for a resource. And that could be a book, a podcast, kind of a habit that you have every day, something that's been helping you as you've been building your business. Um, and also up leveling as a leader yourself. Well, I love resources of all kinds. I think um, podcasts, ones like this, listen to, you know, whatever niche that you're in, there's going to be a podcast about it. So, you know, there's food CPG podcasts and there's there's so many out there. So I love to listen to people's stories, people who are further along than I am and, you know, understanding that every mistake has been made in the book. And so hopefully you just try to make less than, you know, (laughs) some others and people have done all of this before. Nothing's really new. And so, you know, you can put your new, your unique spin on something, but there's common pitfalls that if you can avoid, will get you there you know get you to your goal that much faster and then books as well um i think one of the so i went through tech stars for for fly and while i w- it's a it's a 
kind of an incubator or like a tech accelerator. Um, and while I don't think CPG and food companies are suited for um, an accelerator like Techstars because they're they're much more like tech platform mm-hmm. oriented, the most helpful thing I learned from there was like how to raise money, like what um, what a CEO really should be doing, and how to scale, like how to think about scaling. And the most helpful resource there was this book called Venture Deals. I would recommend, you know, anyone who has to raise money for their companies. And again, not every company I think is venture backable, but it's still really helpful to understand like how investors think, how to capitalize your business. Um, So it's called venture deals. And then the other thing is other founders. Like that's the most helpful resource for me by far this entire journey. And there's so, you know, there's so many ways to get in touch with them. There's communities you can form your own communities for example the asian kind of food and beverage founder community we formed ourselves because it literally didn't exist two years ago and more recently i've come together with a few of them and we've even created our own uh, retreat that we're hoping to do on a quarterly basis because you know it's just been such a helpful way for each of us to to grow and to share resources and learnings with each other. So create your own community if it doesn't exist already and tap into others if there already are and make sure that you're seizing opportunities to to connect with with those folks and and a lot of I mean every founder has gone through this journey and wants to kind of give back. And so yeah. I've found some really great mentors just by, you know, DMing them on LinkedIn, DMing them on Instagram. And, you know, I found investors that way, advisors that way. Um, so just not being shy to do that. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And a shameless plug here. We have a community on Geneva.com uh, for female founders who are building consumer brands that is free to join. And I'll put the link in the show notes if anyone wants to wants to come to that. We do founder AMAs, workshops, and it's just like a very active, very fun, very helpful space if anybody's looking for their people as well. Jing, thank you so much. It's been so amazing to hear your story. Congratulations on everything that you've built so far. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Female Founder World. I hope to see you at one of our events soon. And I always end the show with the same ask. If you haven't dropped us a five-star review, what are you doing? It'll make my day. Drop us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts.